Hey everyone, Hoppo here. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to get into the studio because of the COVID outbreak, so the quality of these episodes may not be as good as usual. But stay safe, and uh, we'll get through all this together. Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad, and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way, and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach is part two of my chat with Laurie Williams. In this episode, Laurie talks about the Bondi Dairy Farm, the Bondi Public Executioner, and Shark Alley, and many more Bondi stories. Now let's have a listen to my chat with Laurie. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, it's a, a welcome back to Loz, Laurie Williams. How are you, mate? Good to be here, mate. Lovely day. Well, mate, I thought I'd get you back because the last time we chatted about the history of Bondi, we touched on lifeguards and, and touched a bit on the Bondi history. But there's so much there, I thought we'd follow up with a part two and get you in again and uh, tell some more history stories. So I'll start off with um, the first ones, the, the Icebergs Club and, and how that came about. Well, the Bondi, the Bondi Baths was built at the same time as uh, Bronny Baths, which was well, back in the late 1800s. I think it was 1878. Anyway, we'll go with that. There was increased pressure on the council to build swimming baths. People weren't allowed to swim in the ocean uh, during daylight hours. And obviously, they couldn't swim there safely because there was no one to look after them. So they built two swimming pools. Uh, Bondi and Bronte. So started off um, very early days. The icebergs were formed in 1928, 1929. Um, just a group of swimmers who'd been using the baths for a long time. Obviously uh, loved their swimming so much that they took it through to winter and uh, they thought, well, why not form a club and let's um, make it official and have races every every weekend. And that's how it all started. They do lay claim to being the first swimming club, winter swimming club in Australia, although I'll guarantee you Bronny would uh, put their hand <laughs> up there and say, no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, we would. It's like the surf clubs, swimming clubs. Every, everyone wants to claim to be number one. That's right, and I'm not going to enter into that dispute. <laughs> I'll leave that be. <laughs> Mate, the other one is... Uh, you probably would have grown up on this, the surfer planes. Yes, I did it at, at a later stage. Um, they came into being in, in the uh, early 1930s and um, they were a local doctor or a, a doctor that lived in the area, uh, Ernest Smithers. And uh, he was probably what you'd refer to as a bit of a crackpot inventor. He's quite brilliant actually because not only did he invent the surfer plane, but he invented the Jaffa line. So once again, Bondi will lay claim to Ernest being ours. Do- uh, Dr. Ernest Smithers, he was a he was a uh, physician. He was a doctor, 
uh, medical doctor. Anyway, we're going to lay claim to that and we're going to lay claim to surfer planes being our invention and the Jaffa line being our invention. But um, they are immensely popular in the, in the early days because um, surfboards being as big and heavy as they were, were probably restricted to um, just members of the surf club who uh, could manage them. They were quite cumbersome and heavy, as I said before. So what the surfer plane did was open up, you know, surfing to a whole lot of other people, you know, people that couldn't swim, uh, for better or for worse. As you know, when people go out on boogie boards that don't know how to use them. But anyway, they were a flotation device that allowed a lot of people to get out in the water and, and surf. And, of course, they'd bounce uh, once you got on a wave uh, being made of rubber, they'd bounce up and down and all around. Uh, they were lightweight. They were easy to carry. So, yeah, a, a surf craft for the masses. <laughs> uh, they did develop over the years. A couple of the big um, rubber companies, including Advance, got on board and started uh, mass producing them. So they initially they were just for hire down at the beaches, places like Bondi, Bronte, Cronulla, Manly. But when the big manufacturers got a hold of them, then they were made available uh, to the public to buy. Uh, and, and so many kids I know grew up um, surfing on surfer planes. And then, of course, you know, once cool lights came out, once again, you know, that was another, another level again for learners. I remember when I was a kid growing up at Bronte that they used to hire them out there at, at Bronte there, the sheds, and uh, they used did. to get out there on the, the blow-ups, and, and they did the same at Bondi, didn't they? They hired them they out. They did. The, the, the McDonald family, uh, who were there for decades, uh, were hiring them out at, at Bondi. And, of course, over at Bronte, it was um, uh, rugby league and eastern suburbs legend Dave Brown who hired out the surfer planes, amongst other things, deck chairs. Yeah, well-known... Uh, Legend of Bronte and, and the Roosters. Yes. Touching on the new, the McDonald's, they also had a, a thing called Vita Tan Oil. And you remember that in the day when you were working as a as a lifeguard back in the set, late 70s? I think I only uh, basted, I only allowed them to base me once. Uh, <laughs> and I, I, I copped the regular cooking out there in the sun. I mean, it looked so good. It was... It was like a dark rosé, as in the wine. It was like a dark Australian rosé in colour. They perfumed it. Um, it was actually mutton bird oil made right. from the poor old mutton birds. You know, it was, it was meant to have all sorts of health-giving properties, both on your skin and uh, also a dose down the gullet. Uh, <laughs> I, can't, I can't testify to that. There's no way I'd go any further than to have it uh, sprayed on me. But, yes, in the 1950s, they uh, they did do spray tans at Bondi, and um, it was mutton bird oil, but it was marketed as Vita Tan, and you wouldn't know where it came from, really. It just looked good. It smelt good. It was perfumed. Yeah, fantastic, and just get out there and fry. <laughs> well, it would be, it'd be like oiling yourself and putting yourself in the oven, wouldn't it, the way that, that you would have got burnt the amount of people? Well, there were certain unnamed... Uh, beach inspectors that would spend their lunchtime as if they hadn't had enough sun, you know, working an eight to 10 hour shift on the beach. They'd go down and uh, sit in the deck chairs out front of Max Hire and uh, they'd get a spray tan and lie there with a wigwam behind them, which is like a half shelter. 
so that there was no wind and just bake in the sun. And let me tell you, <laughs> they are paying the price now. <laughs> well, I think our mate uh, Harry's uh, missed his calling there. That would have been perfect for him oh, back in the day. He would have been a walk-up start, <laughs> not not just on one side of the gun, but on the other side as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit here. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, also... Can you tell us a bit about the, the Bondi bogey holes? Okay, bogey hole is uh, an Indigenous word, an Aboriginal word. It can mean, it has quite a few meanings, but they, they all basically mean the same thing. And it's a place to bathe or wash. You know, it, it was used in the bush. It wasn't just in the ocean. Um, it was used in the bush uh, where people would find watering holes to go and bathe, but applied around up and down the coast, you know, a bogey hole was a rock pool, basically. And, you know, like a lot of other things back in the day, it was the exclusive domain of the men. There seemed to be men's bogey holes uh, at all the popular beaches. I know that Bondi in particular had two. Bronte had one. Uh, Tamarama had one. Uh, a lot of, lot of places had pools and it wasn't unknown for men uh, as I said it was the exclusive domain of men but it wasn't unknown for men to bathe nude so there'd be if you're unfortunate enough to um, go for a walk around the rocks and you'd happen upon you know anywhere up to a, a hundred men diving in the water lying on the rocks nude <laughs> it was like a proper colony but they didn't yeah. think anything of it yeah. not well, at all that makes sense to me now because at Bronte growing up, there's the bogey hole, which was the, the kids' bogey hole which, uh, where the mothers and kids would go. That's right. But then the bogey hole off the main bars was always called the men's bogey hole. So now it makes sense why that was called. It could be the, the what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly right. And at Bondi, you had a bogey hole next to the Bondi Icebergs Club. Essentially, you'd climb down a ladder from the side of the uh, the Bondi Barbs, or icebergs as people know it now, um, you'd be on a rock shelf. They'd go to the edge of the rock shelf and they'd catch a wave that would sweep over the rock shelf. And at the very end, before you hit the uh, rock wall, there was a rope that was strung out between two metal poles and you'd grab that rope before you hit right. the wall, but there was a real art to it. But, you know, it was a lot of fun. I'd, I'd yeah. done it. Uh, the bogey hole out at North Bondi, which is around Ben Buckler, was a lot deeper, a lot more dangerous. But, you know, boys being boys, it was we were all up for the challenge. Mate, uh, going way back, there was uh, Bondi was a dairy farm. Can you explain... Was it someone that owned that property or how'd that yeah. come about? Yep. Um, there were a number of dairy farms around Waverley. Um, there were probably two or three at Bondi, one at North Bondi, one up at Dover Heights. But the one at South Bondi, uh, which is up where the Royal Hotel is these days, was a proper big you know, it was a big dairy. They had up to 200 shorthorn cattle that they would milk. They had uh, siring bulls. Uh, they, they were a prize-winning herd. They were winning awards every year at the Royal Easter Show. And the big surprise in all of it is 
that they were there from the 1860s right up until 1919 when, you know, land became so precious for housing that they actually got forced out. And, of course, there was always the hygiene issue of, you know, hosing down the milking yards, all that manure going into the stormwater, people complaining. So they sold up uh, in 1919. But as I say, um, a lot of people don't realise the scale of that particular dairy. It was called Mackenzie's Dairy. And it was a really, really good quality operation. And they were delivering. They had a, a, a whole lot of um, horse and cart drivers. They were delivering milk all over the eastern suburbs and as far as the city. And their paddocks uh, ran all the way from Bondi Road all the way out to what we now know as Marks Park. So the, right. herd, the herd would be put out to pasture down there and come milking time, which I think was as early as 1 o'clock in the morning, and then 11.30 a.m. in the morning, um, the herd would automatically trot up Fletcher Street to the, de- to the milking sheds. Right, so that was the main source of milk, was it, for the eastern suburbs? Yeah, it was, yeah. I mean, there, there were, at one stage, anywhere up to 30 dairies. Now, they weren't just dairies where they had milking milking cows but there were also um they, what a dairy was in addition to that was a place where they distributed milk but yeah milk was um you know one of the staples one of the diet dietary staples and um yeah they had a ready-made market in the eastern suburbs but at, at mackenzie's dairy is remembered these days um with the name mackenzie's bay Right, so the bay there was named after the uh, after Mackenzie. That's right. right. Okay, yeah. that's something I didn't know. So, I've well, there you go. Learned something got, today. I've got a photograph somewhere that where you can see the cows out on Marks Marks Park there, which was all uh, a, a huge reserve. What people don't realise is that yes, they did graze on grass, but there wasn't a lot of grass, as you know how hard it is to grow yeah. grass down in this environment. Um, they were actually fed a lot of dried, dried, um, loosened hay in the stalls when they were getting right. milked. That's a very good story. Mate, also the sand dunes of Bondi. Interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, they all but disappeared in the 1920s. They were levelled. One of them in particular was anywhere up to 60, well, 25 metres in height, um, which is a really, really big sand hill. They stretched all the way from the flat area of Bondi down in the valley, all the way across to Rose Bay. And what they were, were the remnant of centuries and centuries or millions of years of erosion of of sandstone. And... um, they were considered in in the very early days of um, of European settlement as being a pest. Um, I mean, we can look at them now and think, well, you know, my God, they look uh, they look great. Um, you know, yeah. just imagine doing hill sprints up those. Or, but the, they stood in the way of progress as far as far as a lot of people were concerned, and that's the reason why in the 1920s. They, they took a lot of work to level them out. And what a lot of people don't realise is that the beach at Rose Bay, um, yes, it always had sand, but a lot of the Bondi sand from the Sand Hills was actually trucked over there and dumped 
on the beach. So, um, yeah, Rose Bay has a lot of our our pure white quartzite sand. Right. And there was a rumour there that some of the sand was shipped uh, over to Waikiki in Hawaii. Is that right? I'm not sure if it was the Bondi or, or the sand dunes out at Cronulla, but there was sand that was transported from Australia over to Hawaii. Wow. There's, there's a little little bit of us all around the world. <laughs> That's right. Well, that, I can tell you this um, as a little bit of um, trivia is that one of the biggest two-up schools in Sydney used to operate in at the the back in the, in amongst those sand hills, and it was also Lover's Corner. Right. As you can imagine, if you needed to uh, disappear with your, <laughs> with your loved one, <laughs> there was no end of hiding places out there. You'd go up into the sand dunes <clears throat> and do what you had to do. That's exactly right. <laughs> uh, mate, also touching on back in the day, uh, the North Bondi camp days up on the hill there. That's something I never knew that it was actually a, a campsite. Well, that ties in with the sand hills and, you know, development of Bondi by way of housing and, and transport really stopped um, in the middle of the beach up until, you know, again, the 1920s. And the Sandhills are all part of this story as well because what would happen is to get to North Bondi, and there weren't many houses out there. The public hangman, Nosy Bob, lived out there in isolation in a cottage. There are a couple of other buildings out there. But um, a lot of adventurous young men from the inner inner suburbs, inner city suburbs like Surrey Hills, Paddington, Glebe. They'd come out of a weekend and they'd probably take a, ba- a barrel of beer with them. Eventually, they either bought out tents. Eventually, they put up um, little dwellings, much the same as what you see down in the National Park. So they carry the building materials out there and build humpies and little huts and campsites. And their weekend would be spent doing things like surfing. When I say surfing, I mean body surfing, um, having boxing matches, wrestling matches. They created mini golf courses out there. Um, they do sprints in the sand. It was a real um, it was a real boys' own weekend full of adventures. They had the bogey hole out on the point. Um, eventually, a group of those men that um, formed those campsites out there uh, were responsible for, um, or were the foundation members of the North Bondi Surf Club. But um, the, ha- the, the camps out there had all sorts of fancy names like Camp Jolly Boys, Solstice Rose. Yeah, yeah. There was good and there was bad. There were the athletes that went out there and then there were the, those that just went out there for a, um, for a weekend um, drinking session. Right. Yeah. Well, you touched a little bit on it. Something that I'm interested in is the Bondi Public Executioner. Nosy Bob Howard, <laughs> <laughs> a.k.a. Nosy Bob. That's an interesting story. He was a cab driver, so uh, he drove handsome cabs, which was horse, horse and cart. He had a very elite clientele back in the 1860s. Uh, when I say elite clientele, most of them lived in Macquarie Street in the city. 
uh, was, which was quite a prestigious address, or out at um, Darling Point, again, a very prestigious uh, suburb. His horse, he was a very tall man, um, had good bearing about him, good looking apparently, and that was until his horse kicked him in the face accidentally, and his face was so disfigured that he lost um, all of his high society clientele. No one wanted to travel with him uh, because of this, the disfigurement of his face. He basically lost his nose. Right. And there was no plastic surgery as we know it today. No nose Bob, nosy Bob. <laughs> uh, cruel. It was his fellow cab drivers that actually uh, named him nosy Bob. Right. Anyway, he happened to be... Um, he happened to have a passenger one day who was the New South Wales Sheriff, which was a, uh, a position of great authority, um, and it operated out of the District Court at Darlinghurst. And, of course, attached to the District Court uh, was the Darlinghurst Jail, where uh, there are a lot of hardened criminals, and they were conducting executions by hanging. He felt sorry for Nosy Bob uh, with his lack of business, and he offered him the job as the public executioner and Nosy Bob took up that job and I think he carried out in the vicinity of over 60 uh, hanging, public hangings, most of them at Darlinghurst but um, he was also um, in demand over in New Zealand and in country towns. I think he might have hung Captain Moonlight, the famous bush, Australian bushranger but Again, he, he was loathed uh, anywhere he went. Uh, people were superstitious about being around the public executioner, public hangman. So the hotel that existed at the time down at Bondi, he bought a cottage. He did marry. He had two daughters and a son. And as I say, they lived in the cottage at North Bondi. In, 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 it would have been blissful isolation. There was nothing up there. He kept his horse up there and the publican at the Cliff House Hotel at the other end of the beach used to break his glass after he drunk them out of superstition. No one would drink from that glass. Right. Eventually, Bob got wise to that and I guess it must have been really hard for him to stand at a bar with everyone staring at him and they weren't smiling, let me tell you. Okay. So he trained his uh, faithful old horse to trot across the sand dunes from his place at North Bondi with a container, a jug, and the horse would uh, would trot across at speed and the horse was so well trained it would get to the pub, the publican would fill up the, the jug with whatever he, I, I think he drank rum and he drank beer, mm -hmm. fill up and the horse would, would travel across the sand hills at a very gentle pace so as not to spill a drop. <laughs> He was also, um, he, he had, a, had a very uh, strange hobby, and that was he loved catching sharks on the beach. Right. So he'd bait a hook, a gaff, a hook, on rope, take it out in the water in a dinghy, and he'd pull the sharks in, and then he'd, um, he'd prise out their jaws, leave their carcasses on the beach to rot, and he had a front lawn full of um, shark jaws. Really? A very interesting man was our Bob. <laughs> he lived in Brighton Boulevard <laughs> at North Bondi, for those that really want to know where he lived. <laughs> what, um, whatever happened to him then? What was the... Uh... Well, he died of natural causes. He, um, 
He retired as the public hangman, I'm thinking 1906, around that time anyway. You know, he, he had enough and, you know, it's said that his daughters never married and that, you know, his son and daughters were quite ashamed of him, but I don't think there's any substantial proof of that. From all, from all accounts, he was a very generous man, a very kind man, um, which was the, the other side of the picture. Mm. Um, and even when he was uh, hanging someone, you know, he, he always had a kind word to offer. Um, Before, he hung <laughs> Before he hung them. Before he hung for the grace of God, you go. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, look, I will stand corrected on, um, sorry, uh, it's bugging me, uh, Bondi Bars and Bronny Bars. They were both built in 1980, uh, 1887. Right, okay. Just for those who want to pick me up on that. <laughs> Mate, you're saying about we grew up and uh, you just touched on, uh, is that where Shark Alley came from, the words? Because North Bondi was known when I was growing up as Shark Alley. That's exactly right. Shark Alley was up that that uh, rip up in the north corner that ran out to the, as far out as the boat shed on big days. Um, you know, shark fishing was, was, a, was a big thing and... In the early days, in the 1890s and way up until the 1950s, um, shark catching was more about the sport of catching sharks and not so much about ridding the beach of a menace, although, you know, that's what the fishermen would tell people that they were doing. But, yeah, I think for them it was more the sport of catching sharks. When they were doing it in the early days up north Bondi, you know, they were doing it off the beach with um, line, hook, line and pole. Uh, you can imagine how hard that would have been. Yeah. And again, it, there was a big issue there because they would pull the sharks in, pull the jaws out and every any anything else that they used from um, the shark and they would leave the carcasses on the beach to rot. Uh, that was until, you know, eventually council got jack of them doing that and having to get their staff to come and bury the carcasses. Eventually, they pushed out to the boat shed at North Bondi where the Amateur Fishermen's Club is and they were catching sharks offshore and bringing them up on the boat ramp. But Shark Alley, yes, that's where it got its name from. And going on to that was the, the fishing club there at North Bondi. Is that how eventually that formed from, from the shark fishing? Well, I think... You had your fishermen, you had your shark fishermen, and you had your fishermen as well, and then you had guys that were doing both, fishing for, um, you know, food fish and fishing for sharks for fun and to rid the beach of the menace. But, yes, there were people fishing on the beach who would have been the foundation members of Bondi Amateur Fishermen's Club or Ben Buckler Amateur Fishermen's Club, I think it's called out there. Including a couple of very well-known uh, beach inspectors back in the day, Roth Bassingwade and and Orb Laidlaw, and his brother Dudley. They were they were all very um, keen members of the club out there. Mate, there's an interesting story that when I was looking through all your archives of uh, what you've done, Evelyn Marsden. Yes, was an interesting story. Can you tell us a bit about her? Well, that was a story that only came to light in recent years and. Evelyn was the only Australian 
female survivor of the sinking of the Titanic in 1912. And Evelyn was working on the Titanic at the time. She would have been a ship stewardess who would have attended to the needs of passengers in whatever class she was in, whether it was first, second or steerage. But when the Titanic was sinking and... um, you know, women and children and and uh, and others had to um, take to the lifeboats. Evelyn had been brought up in South Australia uh, before, you know, joining the Titanic for its um, ill-fated voyage. And where she was in Adelaide, she used to take her holidays at a farm. Now, the farm was on the Murray River and the person that she stayed with taught her the farmer taught her how to row at a very young age and that was to come in handy when her particular lifeboat was lowered and they were in the water for you know I think it was 12 hours and they were rowing the women had to row and she took charge of that lifeboat that she was in because she knew how to row and um, she instructed the others as to how to row the lifeboat. So they rode and rode and rode until they were picked up by a ship in the uh, early hours of the next day. And it was remarkable because she, you know, like a lot of other people back in those days, um, they're very humble. They didn't, they didn't seek uh, attention. You know, she just sort of settled into the background. She married a doctor. Uh, her parents thought she had died because obviously the news back in those days didn't get back immediately as to, you know, who had drowned. So it was assumed that she was dead and um, it turned out that she wasn't, that she lived as did everyone else on the lifeboat that she was in. So um, married a doctor and they eventually settled in Bondi and that's where, you know, again unsung heroes because you know no more was heard of them there were no stories on on the fact that she was the only she was a she was a hero that was one thing and the fact that she was a survivor uh, was the other thing but um it wasn't until she died and and they were buried her and her husband uh, they lived in Kalua street and uh, they were buried in an unmarked grave which again is remarkable up at waverley cemetery until a group of people got together and put, you know, raised money to give them both a proper headstone. Mate, the uh, going over that way towards Waverley Cemetery, you will go to Tamarama, and there used to be a, a fun park in Tamarama, roller coasters and and everything on the beach. It's hard to imagine when you look at Tamarama now that that would all fit in. Well, going back to those years, um, eighteen eighty-seven, that. that, that Big years, actually, they were, because uh, they saw not just the building of the two baths, but um, uh, also saw the extension of the tram line that came down Bondi Road uh, from Bondi Junction and whipped around the corner into Denham Street and came down Fletcher Street. Didn't quite get to the beach in that time, but in 1887, the Bondi Aqua- the Royal Bondi Aquarium, Royal, Royal. Um, was constructed it was the lunar park of its day it had a dance hall it had an aquarium where there were you know stingray 
uh, wobby gongs, um, a seal, <laughs> all sorts of uh, token marine critters. But it also had a number of rides, um, you know, switchback railway, um, all the rides that were, were, were popular in those days. It burnt to the ground in the early 1890s and um, it was reconstructed and renamed the Bondi Aquarium, no royal. Right. Uh, didn't last very long, just like its predecessor. It lasted until um, the early 1900s, but it was it morphed again when uh, an entrepreneur by the name of William Anderson came along and um, he created the amusement park to beat all amusement parks and that was Wonderland City. That was 1906 and it lasted until 1912. Right. And you name it, it had it. It had an elephant, <laughs> it, but it was extended it, it took up the grounds of the old Bondi Aquarium and it extended right back into the gully. And uh, to this day, there is very little by way of um, evidence that that Wonderland City was there. Right. Yeah, yeah, you'd never know. You'd never know that was there. No, no. They had a hot air balloon, hot air balloon rides. They Again, they had the switchback railway. They, they had a helter-skelter. There were all these rides at um, uh, Camera Obscura, really old-fashioned um, amusements that don't exist anymore. A Cats and Jammer castle, which essentially was a castle. You see it in the old pictures mm. where you went up uh, inside the castle and then you came down a slippery slide and came out. I mean, we, we have them now, but they're, they're not called Cats and Jammer castles. Yeah, yeah. But, it, you know, people were flocking there. But um, like most things, um, it lost its appeal. Uh, being by the ocean, um, you know, they, they would have had their bad days uh, where the weather, you know, it was all weather driven. And the other thing was there was a really big push from Tamarama Surf Club and also the locals that lived around the area because Anderson had fenced off the beach, barring public access, there was a very big push on to bring that uh, park and beach back into the public domain, and that mm. saw the end of Wonderland City. Right, yeah, that's uh, sad that it ended, but, uh, yeah, you can understand that they went for the public to come through there. Yeah, well, there just weren't any people in the end, and, and it was the popularity of the beach over the amusement park that saw the end of the amusement park. Well, mate, we, we all grew up surfing. And do you remember when the first surfboard arrived at Bondi? Oh, well, it would have been... And now we know it's a solid um, sugar pine board and that Duke Kahanamoku from Hawaii, famous Hawaiian swimmer, he was an Olympic swimmer and uh, and surfer, board rider, came out here in 1915. And um, there were surfers before him, but, I mean, it's hard to pin. It was around that time that riding surfboards was popular amongst a few down at Bondi. I mean, with him coming out here and giving a display down at the beach, and apparently when he did come down to Bondi, it was one of several beaches that he went to that day, one on the north side and one 
Um, I think he might have gone to Cronulla as well. Uh, the, the conditions at Bondi were appalling, so he really didn't get to show off um, this incredible talent that he had. However, what he did do was he spurred that interest at Bondi. As I previously said, the problem with these um, heavy boards was they were big, heavy, cumbersome. So there were only a few that were willing to take up the challenge of carrying these things down to the water and taking them out. They weren't, you know, they had no fin. Uh, so you can only, um, you know, I, I suppose if you got a got your um, your kitchen table and took the legs off it and went out on that, you might get an idea. It's a bit more tapered than that, but you yeah. might have an idea of just how hard it was to surf on these things. Oh, it would have been tough. So yeah, that, that's why it really was just a few people are actually interested in riding them, and they would have been surf club members because. Hey, you weren't taking that thing down to the beach, you know, yeah. from wherever you lived. You yeah. were keeping it in the surf club. Yeah, you know? too heavy, too heavy, too, too, too hard heavy. To, to walk. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, kids don't know how good they got it today. I know, I know. Harry, <laughs> Harry Nightingale's father, um, uh, Harry still got his father's um, sugar pine board and, and I've, I've lifted that up. I think I actually carried it down for a display from a surf shop where they had it on display. <clears throat> and uh, I had to get someone to carry the back of it. It was unbelievably heavy. <laughs> Mate, the other one down there they celebrate every year is obviously Anzac Day. That's yes. a big one down there at the North Bondi RSL. That's right. It, it's, got a, it's got a great tradition. Um, you know, one of the first clubs formed in Australia for return servicemen was at uh, Bondi. Uh, eventually known as the uh, Bondi Diggers Club. Um, but what would happen, that, that it, it was formed after, it was formed in the 1920s and um, it was for the benefit of returned servicemen from the First World War. Um, they had a clubhouse, I think it was called Gallipoli Hall, um, single-storey building uh, on Campbell Parade. And it wasn't until um, after the Second World War that um, there was another club, and that's Tobruk House, or North Bondi RSL Club, uh, was formed. But what would happen on Anzac Day is that um, they would start at North Bondi, a North Bondi RSL Club. They had a uh, pipe and drum band, sometimes from Scots College, that would head out. So what would happen is that uh, they'd had their own service at a small memorial they had outside the um, North Bondi Tobruk House or the Rat House as we used to call it, mm. and they'd uh, they definitely um, fortify themselves with a few refreshments in the club <laughs> before the march. They'd then much march up Campbell Parade. They'd be joined by the members of the Bondi Diggers Club, and they join in the march. And they would march all the way up Bondi Road to the War Memorial next to the council chambers. Now, anyone that knows the lie of the land, they would know that it's all uphill. Now, we're talking about war veterans here. And as time went on, World War I veterans were getting older. <laughs> and eventually so were the uh, Second World War vets. Um, anyway, they were fortified with their refreshments. They would meet up with um, members 
from the Bondi Junction RSL and the Bronny RSL and the um, the Legion Club at Charing Cross. And they'd all meet up there at the large war memorial in Waverley Park and then they disperse and go back to their clubs. But it was a great right. tradition, you know, because, you know, these men had served in the war um, and, you know, they had a lot of memories, good and bad, and this was their opportunity to... Um, you know, hang out with their comrades on that special day to march with them and march proudly, usually headed up with flags behind the uh, pipe and drum band. So, yeah, it was a really special occasion. But it's a great history, and I know we uh, everyone gets down there every year for Anzac Day. Mate, a couple of things uh, left I want to talk about. So North Bondi uh, in the park there, there's the building that people may remember and uh, may not. The Beach Court building. The Beach Court, yep. Built in 1920, uh, privately owned. Started out with all the right intentions as a dance hall. I think it might have been known as Tiny's Dance Hall. But uh, somewhere along the line, the club was purchased by a dentist and uh, a doctor and another businessman. And when I say businessman... Uh, all three of them uh, were quite notorious for different reasons that I won't go into, but they weren't. <laughs> they were associated with criminal elements if they weren't criminals themselves. Yeah. So what started out, started out as a dance, um, a dance hall uh, quickly turned into a nightclub. And during Prohibition, they were caught a number of times um, serving alcohol. Uh, they had you know, live music, bands that played there regularly. So there was sly grog to be bought there and across the road in uh, a block of very small apartments known as Raffles, uh, that was a brothel. So, you know, it was pretty much a one-stop shop if that's what you wanted. It, <laughs> it, it, it changed names a number of times. It was called um, Mirrors, The Lido, as I said before, Tiny's, I think it might have been called um, the Palms. Uh, but there was always that criminal element that seemed to be associated with it. Eventually, the owner of the building um, sold it to the council and they demolished it. And it, it was, you know, it became part of Bidigal Reserve. Mm-hmm. Nothing left of it, but... Uh, yeah, there was, it certainly made the newspapers on a number of occasions and they weren't, it wasn't good news. No, <laughs> I can imagine what it would be like back then. Well, both surf clubs banned their members. This is how um, notorious the club was. Uh, both surf clubs banned their, uh, their members from wearing their club blazers into the club. And a number right. of them went in there. Um, there's no doubt about that. Terry Jenkins' father, Bill Jenkins, went in there and he was in there one night when they had a major bust. And as the story goes, a funny story, you know, you can imagine all the cops piling in there and people trying to flee out whatever door they could, Um, you know, people getting arrested and pinned down uh, because they were drinking, you know, and they shouldn't have been drinking in there. Um, And anyway, what Terry, I think it was Terry's father, Bill, uh, it was became a famous crime reporter. 
he jumped up on the stage where the band were and he quickly grabbed an instrument as if he was part of, part of the band. <laughs> so he got immunity straight away. <laughs> he might, I don't know what he picked up. Terry would correct me on this, but it might have been a saxophone or a clarinet. <laughs> Who, me? I'm just part of the band. <laughs> yeah, no, Bill, uh, Bill used to teach me. Uh, he's my first person that taught me to swim and I know exactly what he's like. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that, that's him. I Hundred percent. He would have uh, thought he used to be. I think on his feet really quick, and uh, he would have done that. Yeah, yeah. He was a he was a classic. <laughs> Mate, I want to finish up now on the, the famous shark bell. I think uh, that that's uh, a, a bit of history there. The uh, the shark bell, which was a little bit before my time. Now we use the siren to to tell warn people to get them out of the water when there's a shark. But you know, back in the day, there was the the shark bell. Yeah, cast brass. Um, very early days, um, the bell was there for members of the surf, the two surf clubs and the beach inspectors to use. Um, the council, North Bondi had their own bell in on top of the clubhouse and uh, Bondi and the beach inspectors had the bell to use in the middle of the beach, but usually when one bell went off, the other bell was rung as well. Eventually, it became the responsibility of the beach inspectors or lifeguards, as, as we're now called, uh, to ring the bell if need be. So you would probably remember when we were working that um, uh, we the bell was always out there hanging on a pole yep. um, where it had always been on the promenade. It used to be on the pier um, when the piers were around. It was on the promenade, but the gong... Uh, the metal piece, piece that made all the noise, yeah. uh, we'd take that off at the end of the day and keep that in the office. And then one of your duties in the morning was to put the gong on. But, you know, every now and then there was always that smart ass that would come <laughs> along and, and hit the bell and run. And it was invariably it was always a, a local kid. But, you know, it remained a tradition for a long time. Yeah, but yeah. like most traditions, like the surf line and reel, you know, they were outdated and superseded, in the case of the shark bell, superseded by an electric alarm, uh, which we have to this day. Yep. But, yeah, a great tradition that stood for, um, you know, decades. Well, lots of it's uh, great sitting back and listening to the history of Bondi, the most knowledgeable, knowledgeable man, I think, in in, in Bondi with uh, what you what <laughs> you know with the history. Um, and, you, put me also- on the, you put me on the spot, though, I, you know, I... You know, all these facts and <laughs> figures come running, you know. I'll tell you what, you're not doing too bad with your memory either. But, uh, you know, back in the day when I started, you were my mentor as a lifeguard and, and probably thanks to what you did back then to get me to be in the, the lifeguard I, I have and had this career. So I've got to congratulate you on that and also the, the history, mate. It's uh, been great. It's been a great friendship as well. So That's a, Yeah, it has been a great friendship and those very kind words. Thank you, mate. It's a pleasure okay. to be on here, as always. Oh, good. And if anyone wants to, uh, I know you've got your um, Instagram, uh, Bondi Insta- Historian. That's right, the Instagram, and and um, it's also on Facebook. If anyone wants to follow what I put up there, they're unique and interesting stories, uh, and it is called Bondi Historian. Mate, thanks again, Loz, and uh, we'll catch up soon. 
Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, Beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.